Today on The Rights of Others, we are very fortunate to have Maurizio um, Lazala join us. Um, some of you who will follow the business and human rights work very closely may be quite familiar with Mauricio. Mauricio currently works with the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. He is the deputy director or one of the deputy directors and joined the center in 2006, so has been then for an impressive amount of time. Uh, previous to this role, he was the senior researcher and head of Latin America and the Middle East, um, and he has a lot of um, a really heavy relationship working with various on the ground partners in that region, which we look forward to hearing about more during this conversation. Mauricio is also a member of the board of the Iris Foundation, Empowering Responsible Investment. Um, perhaps before his professional um, sort of work in, uh, in London, he served as a law clerk at the International Criminal Court, a program manager at Mexican Commission for the Protection and Defense of Human Rights, and outreach coordinator for, and I'm going to say this wrong, Salem, an Israeli information center for human rights in the occupied territories. Mauricio is well published. He's published various articles on business and human rights. Uh, he has a law degree um, from the University of Cambridge and a BA in political science and history from Hebrew University in, of Jerusalem. So Mauricio, it's so great to have you today um, joining Olga and I on the rights of others. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's my first podcast, so I'm very excited and, and especially speaking with two uh, admired colleagues as, as both of you are. Thank you, Mauricio. That's fantastic. Yes, uh, Sima said, you know, you joined the Business Human Rights Research Center uh, in 2006. And this, this means that uh, you've been at the forefront of the development of uh, uh, BHR as a field as a, a community of practice. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I remember these uh, times when the three of us were uh, slightly younger and uh, very uh, still um, slightly less uh, cynical about some of the things and how and how much the field in a way has um, uh, grown and how much it has evolved. And to, and to some extent, how little it has evolved in some other areas. But uh, Mauricio, we, we tend to uh, like to start our conversations asking our guests, what are you working on at the moment? Tell us. Right, yeah, sure. Well, um, as you know, we at the Research Center uh, have an expansive agenda and area of topics, but with that growth in the field that you just mentioned, we have had to prioritize as well. And, um, and therefore, at the moment, I would say, um, so we, we just adopted our new four-year strategic plan. And in that new strategic plan, we have a new uh, few interesting new topics that we are focusing on. One is tech and rights. Um, that we elevated to one of the top three thematic priorities of the organization. And I'm leading on that uh, project at the moment. Um, we are focusing on, on specific issues within the growing field of tech and rights. Um, one in particular that we are working on uh, a lot at the moment is the surveillance uh, sector, just because that's where a lot of the human rights abuses are taking place. Um, and so we are working with a few partners and allies to develop a model due diligence for surveillance tech in particular. And we're gonna be doing a few other things in that area. Another issue that we are working on at the moment is developing the benchmarks to provide reliable indicators on human rights issues to investors. So I'm sure you know that we are uh, one of the co-creators of the corporate human rights benchmark. We are also involved in Know the Chain, which is a benchmark that focuses exclusively on the issue of modern slavery in supply chains. Um, we have developed some benchmarks specifically in the apparel sector regarding the COVID-19 pandemic to explore how different brands have dealt with the issue of, um, of, of the pandemic, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so that's another area of work. Then we, we are also very much focused on just transition on the post-COVID-19 world. Um, one of the ways in which that manifests itself is our uh, emphasis on the renewable energy sector. Uh, we 
deeply believe that in order to achieve a, a, a fast transition to a low carbon economy in the future, it, it must be also fair. So fast and fair uh, transition to a low carbon economy. And therefore, we have been producing these um, also benchmarks, but briefings and, and especially uh, aim at investors on the human rights challenges of the renewable energy industry to make sure that they don't replicate the same uh, human rights issues that the uh, more traditional extractive sector was, was involved in. And then we have also been following quite closely the developments around mandatory human rights due diligence in Europe. Um, and very importantly, we want to help export that debate to other air parts of the world. So it doesn't stay just as an Euro European discussion, debate, global North focus. So just in the last six months, we conducted a series of workshops in Latin America on mandatory human rights due diligence to see how that could be translated uh, in the local uh, context. Mm, so I think those, that gives you an idea of the main, the main things we are working on at the moment. Definitely, definitely. It's very interesting because when you say, you know, this is your strategic plan about what you're going to focus on in the, in the future, given that uh, your organization is one of the leading organizations in terms of, um, you know, uh, bringing together uh, practitioners, scholars, um, civil society, policymakers, and uh, uh, the fact that you sit down to think about what are the coming challenges in which you want to focus your uh, attention, actually, in a way, are defining the future of the sector, of the business human rights uh, sector. So it is, uh, it is extremely interesting to hear these, um, these four um, uh, main uh, issues, which are going to be the ones, hopefully, that are going to um, capture our attention for, for the coming years. One of the uh, points I wanted to pick up when I was uh, listening to you, this relationship between human rights and the environment and how this has transformed in a way in the past decade, because we knew from the beginning, obviously, that uh, uh, environmental uh, harms had a human rights related uh, um, effect. But it's not until very recently that we've realized we can't do one without the other. And to what extent do you think that we've, we've wasted precious, precious times in the past decade or two trying to develop these as two separate fields? It's true. I mean, listen, the, the environment category on our website was always the largest category that we had. So all our regional researchers around the world were posting a lot of news and articles and information on the human rights impacts of environmental pollution, environmental harm, and environmental you know, displacement, et cetera, uh, involving companies in, in communities around the world. But you are completely right that not until recently we started making more strategic connections, if you want. Um, and the environmental movement has operated in a kind of a separate parallel world to the, to the human rights community at large, I would say. Um, so we have started creating those bridges only, only recently, and I'm very glad that we are doing that. Um, not only because of this whole just transition uh, agenda, which is, is very important, and we can talk about that a bit longer uh, later, but also, for example, on the issue of attacks against environmentalists and human rights defenders that protect the environment. We, we have been focusing on that for the last five years. We have a database of attacks against human rights defenders working on corporate accountability issues. And a lot of the incidents in that database are environmentalist indeed. Well, it's something that Global Witness also has been covering for a long time. Global Witness uh, ex explicitly focuses on the killings. We cover all the types of attacks, you know, also uh, that could lead to killings, but broader set of attacks. And, and there are many environmentalists there. So for, for that work, for example, my colleagues have been working very closely with Greenpeace, with Friends of the Earth with Earth Rights International, which were not our usual partners and allies uh, beforehand. So, so yes, it, it, those bridges are, are crucial and will be more crucial in this just transition uh, work. Um, and, you know, 
the in the renewable energy uh, or you know renewable industry is uh, is very interesting because many of these companies and and I'm afraid to say also some environmentalists tend to think that just because a company is developing a, you know a solar panel park or a wind farm then it's it's a good company it's great you know they are just reducing emissions fantastic what could go wrong well unfortunately uh, if you ask the indigenous communities around the wind farms in mexico or the uh, peasant communities around lithium extraction in Bolivia and Chile, they have a very different story to, to tell about that. So, yeah. Yeah, a very um, important point there as well. I catch up, uh, um, I, I caught when you were talking that before your researchers around the world were telling you about the, the um, you know, the violations linked to the environmental impact and how, and this I think connects a little bit with this last point that uh, you were mentioning of your strategic objective of a mandatory human rights due diligence in other parts of the world. To what extent the, the business human rights community we have uh, really uh, seen of uh, this um, uh, lack of attention to the voices where actually the the um, violations were happening, treating human rights defenders that were being threatened more as victims that, that as uh, agenda setting uh, and uh, agenda setters or, or empowered uh, you know agency into uh, developing the movement. And to some extent, the same thing is happening with. Uh, mandatory human rights indulgence. We are telling um, uh, Western companies how to, at the end of the day, behave in the West. So this is established policies, announced procedures, report with forgetting that the actually this may or may not have an impact on the ground. The mandatory human rights indulgence, just because it's mandatory uh, to to file a report doesn't mean that it's having this kind of uh, impact on the ground that actually empowers and, and, uh, and provides agency to those that are uh, ultimately not just the victims, but also the act the, the active actors. Um, so I think um, I think that's uh, an important point as well that you were picking up when you were saying this. This is you've been giving the voice to to another perspective for a long time. It's yeah. probably more time to formalize it even more. No. Yeah, I mean we we love playing that role. To be honest, I mean we we love uh, elevating the voices from the ground everywhere to the regional and international spaces where a lot of the debates are taking place, a lot of the decisions are being taken, um, and, but, but usually exclude many, many of these voices. So from er very early on, yeah, I think you know this, the, the Resource Center follow a growth strategy that was very much rooted in the global south. So instead of building a big headquarters in London, we, we always prefer to first build a network of consultants, we call them regional researchers, in the different regions in the world so that, that are close to where the abuses were taking place, know the local context much better than us, speak the local languages, um, know how to relate to local companies and the local government, crucially, in a much better way than we could ever do from, from Europe. So, um, you know, when, when I joined in 2006, I was the fourth member of staff. Um, and up to that point, the other three were all kind of white European or North American people. I was the, <laughs> the, the first non-global North person. The fifth person was our local regional researcher in Hong Kong. And I think the sixth or, or seven was uh, our regional researcher in India. And, and that's how we, we started growing. Nowadays, we are almost 80 people uh, covering, you know, with people in 20 countries around the world. Um, and, uh, and that's where we continue to put our, our focus and our, our emphasis. And in, in many of the, of the debates internationally at the UN Forum and, and in the OECD and other places, we, we always collaborate with others to bring, you know, people from the ground, whether they are grassroots human rights defenders, uh, local NGOs, et cetera, to these places, to these spaces. And if we cannot do that physically, we, we ensure that they can send their comments digitally and participate and have their voices uh, heard. Um, 
directly. Uh, that, is, that is very crucial, which is something that we also do, you know, day to day with our company response mechanism process, which essentially is a mechanism that enables local grievances or local allegations of abuses to be heard at the company headquarters, wherever those headquarters uh, may be. Um, really interesting, Mauricio, and I and I I, I like um, this vision that you put out about the need to be, uh, I guess, a decision and proactive decision to be rooted more in the global south, because I, I do think that that's where, um, you know, some organizations have got it wrong, isn't it? It's as you put it, uh, elevate the voices, but <laughs> exclude from kind of the consultation in a way or involvement in, in the decision and how the policies are set and maybe the advocacy calls. Um, a question I have for you. Um, so you, you mentioned this about, for example, in the energy transition, fast and fair. Um, and, and, and of course, how actually, you know, this movement to renewables, there is so much concern, as I know Olga's also worked within the renewable space, the fact that actually, if we allow business as usual, it's just a replication of the same types of harms to people and the environment as we see in just general, um, unfortunately in general corporate conduct where they where there are um, poor safeguards or protections or laws in place, if you wanna say that. Um, so I'm gonna ask you this question about this moment of reflection, because <laughs> now it's also the 10 year, um, sort of, if you want to say, anniversary of the UN guiding principles and business and rights. I mean, everybody, all three of us have been spent probably too many years of our lives focused on, you know, the UN guiding principles. Previous to that, the UN protect, respect, uh, remedy framework, and then previous, like just moving in this moving around this and 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 I know it it was it you know and I don't want I don't think it's worth revisiting whether or not it was it was an accomplishment or not I think for me I often find myself reflecting on have we just really spent all these years tinkering like around the edges of what we think actually are the real problems in this space like so for example you know um the due diligence of course i mean by myself i've been advocating for mandatory human rights due diligence for at least for the last 10 years uh when i was with amnesty um and and it's it's a valid call and it's so great that now it seems we are we have got it in some jurisdictions we, you know we we've we've got forms of it that are on the table in in europe and etc cetera, etc cetera. but i often have this reflection of like actually i don't think that we've hit at the main problem and, and when you were talking about sort of defenders and, you know, um, I just sometimes I feel that the real problem is, is that we have this predatory economic model, right? And it's we've got this model, but then we have these corporate laws like this exists the way that companies are able to exist and operate. Um, and actually, it industry is now this is how industry operates like if you look at supply chains whether it's palm oil or soy or beef or um clothing the supply chains are basically prefaced off abuse it's almost like it's an ingredient that goes into getting the price that we ultimately get or the quantities all this stuff so it's a great example in many ways that it's the model that actually is 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 corrupt and broken so marisa what do you think like i mean uh, um I think this is a challenge to all of us, to be frank, as we've been in this space for so long. Have we, have we, do we need a reset? <laughs> have we missed the point? We're running out of time. I'm hoping to retire in about 15, 20 years. <laughs> Not allowed. I'm going to achieve nothing for my career. Mauricio, <laughs> tell me, what do you think? Uh, well, wow. Uh, it's, it's very, it's a very interesting uh, debate. I mean, thank you for, for the question. I think we could be spending here a long time. And if we had a glass of wine, even longer, um, but uh, or several or several, exactly. Uh, especially on a Friday, but um, look, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that ultimately without dealing with the question of the business model, um many of the things we we can do will just be alleviating uh the symptoms and not tackling with you know the the, the root causes but i do also feel that it, it was necessary i mean it to take all this time to come to this realization and COVID also has helped us understand that even better to put it in a very stark 
stark way to for everybody and then now you have you know voices that you have never thought would be talking about these issues from the heart of the economic capitalist system talking about sustainability and stuff it's only talk for now but but it is compared to five years ago a huge uh, change uh, as well so i i do feel that we needed sometimes we did we needed all this and i, I share your impatience but probably we needed all this thing to to come to this realization um the business model i mean without with the with the the domination of the shareholder primacy and maximizing profits for short-term shareholders that is ultimately also one of the main causes of all these all these abuses because you 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 may have well-intentioned well-meaning people working in all these apparel companies that you know in their private life are wonderful human beings but when they come to work and they're procurement people tell them we only have such and such budget for such and such shirts otherwise we're going to be out of business in three months time that's what they need to find and who pays the price most most likely usually are women at the bottom of supply chains in bangladesh in ethiopia in pakistan and in in the sweatshops in brazil we had a, a report on that with bolivian migrant women uh last year so yes it, it that that is there is and 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 why do i say that because we saw that it if you change the incentive it actually translates into less human rights uh, abuses in south africa some mining companies a few years ago decided to peg bonuses of managers to the number of deaths and injuries that they were having in their operations and at the moment that they did that, the next year, they had significantly less deaths and injuries in their operations than they used to have before that. So, you know, if we, if all the companies would uh, link the, the financial incentives that they are giving to the middle managers and top managers with human rights issues, we would have a profound systemic transformation in in the th way things are working right now but we are we but but we are not having that and and that's we are not even close to having that partly because we have all these smoke screens it's true that you know uh larry fink from blackrock talking about uh, esg and sustainability and the business round table and everybody thinks you know they are doing they're doing the right thing but actually uh very little of that translates into practical uh, steps. So I'm encouraged by the fact that in the last year or so, there's been much more talk about the purpose of the corporation and the business models in the business and human rights uh, world. In, internally, we've had that more. I hear that from other peers and colleagues in other organizations and in other spaces. And, and we are talking about that more. However, we, you know, none of us are, or, or very few of us are economists, and we are not getting into, uh, we, we, we need the help of people like Olga and your colleagues in the academic world, probably, with, to come up with practical solutions and, and uh, easy advocacy campaigning messages in that front that are not seen as a complete, you know, revolution, uh, that we are trying to impose a completely different system because that that's going to be stopped on the tracks very early on and mm -hmm. so so that is one thing and the the uh, the last thing that i wanted to say in in that respect is that even though i share that impatience after being over 15 years in the field of business and human rights um many times i i still feel that is still a relatively new area in in the human rights field more broadly and and you know you mentioned i i did work i did spend a whole summer working at the international criminal court it took more than 30 years to negotiate the statue of rome that ended up establishing the the international criminal court and even then it was you know re reduced to just three of the most severe crimes in the world and uh 
And after, what is it, uh, almost 20 years that the ICC has been operating, how many people have been convicted there? I, I think less than 10, probably. <laughs> uh, so it, it does take a long time. This, the social justice takes a, a long time. Um, so they're, 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 we need to be a bit patient. And sometimes we do need to also analyze the half glass of the half full of the glass to see you know what have we achieved why what could be accelerated what cannot etc um we do tend to focus a lot on the half and yeah. i like I, I like your i like your positivity Mauricio. i've always liked it um before i sort of pass it on to um olga i mean my my own reflection is that I think it is patience, but also I think courage and a bit more honesty, because I feel like part of this is not just the corporate model, but it is actually uh, looking at the, the, the sort of this colonialist type, um, slightly racist model, you know, that actually is is kind of the the whole foreground and kind of I think is often not really addressed at all within this space. Um, yeah. You know, which I think relates to kind of this point that Olga made earlier about sort of what we do in the West. Like, kind of, you know, there is there's something here, and I think, you know, in terms of all these discussions about sort of racial justice, which we're hearing more, because you know, I know that in my own work, we've been doing all the thinking about what does that look like exactly. You know, it's not it's not just about companies saying we support you know equal rights for everybody. It's actually it also goes into a profit making sort of um, model and logic, and also the system and how us as NGOs even um, call for change, right? And, it, and it's very relevant to the point you raised, Mauricio, about we elevate the voices of communities, but how engaged are they in the, in the actual problem and the solution, um, their voice. But thanks so much. Yeah. Right. Well, like, can yeah, I say something about that? Um, yeah. The... Uh, our executive director has also uh, increasingly and, and for a for a long time uh, talking about the issue of of shared prosperity uh, because I, I I totally agree with that colonialist view in the sense that we haven't it's not enough to kind of only include them in the discussions or like co-benefiting uh, in some of these things it is it is crucial that that the whole prosperity is shared. Um, one of the ways in which we have translated this into practical work is with the, the whole area of beyond going beyond social auditing. Beyond, so we, we know why social audit is a, you know, a failed uh, way to uh, detect human rights issues in, in, in supply chains. And more often than not, it, it just hides and gives a plausible way for companies to, to escape accountability and liability but the question is what do you replace social auditing with and one of the the very interesting models out there is this workers driven social responsibility like immokali workers and there are a few others there um, and in renewable energy the question of shared prosperity is if if a renewable energy company comes close to an indigenous community it's not enough that you are committing to sell them 30% of the energy that will be produced by the wind farm. What you really need to do is to allow them to be co-owners of, yeah. the, of the wind farm and then share it in the profits and have a constant revenue stream towards the community for the uh, benefits that that wind farm is, is producing. Then we are much closer to a, to a true level of, of justice and, and social justice in, in the future. So I think that analyzing things through a post-colonial or decolonizing thing, it is it's actually very, very healthy and very good and takes us closer to, uh, to social justice, yeah. That's great. Well, that's uh, it's an uh, important debate that we're having in academia as well, how to decolonize the curriculum, because we're teaching our students, uh, we're repeating things, we're repeating authors, we're repeating uh, views, we're repeating from all, uh, you know, 
a hundred years ago. And even when we write, when I write, if I keep on citing the same authors, I keep on citing in a way the same, um, you know, the, the, the same perspective and approach and way to uh, assess my own reality. And so that becomes the reality because it's the only tools that I have to be critical about the realities, the tools that are now no longer represent um, who these students are and who who you know the community that they should be serving is so uh, this uh, links with uh, with my with your very kind uh, comment about what you, uh, you need uh, um, people like me academics uh, like me no you don't because all we do is rumble and rumble and rumble yeah. in long pages and put a lot of footnotes having said that i did write an article about worker driven monitoring <laughs> may have that probably didn't have any impact, but anyway, so um, to, but this brings me very nicely to this, uh, our careers and our own different positions in the, in the field and in the, you know, in the, the wider effort that we all, the, the three of us and, and, and our colleagues uh, and uh, share of working for the rights of others. So to what extent uh, uh, you think uh, you always wanted to um, do this? So this is, uh, we've asked uh, several of our guests, is working for the rights of other a profession? Is it a vocation? How did it start for you? How did you end up uh, working for the rights of others? That's so nice to be able to talk about that because, you know, very rarely we get asked that, that question. Um, I suspect that the three of us are more or less the same generation. So I, I don't mind revealing my, my age. Um, I, ever since I remember, I, I've cared about social justice issues. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family with a couple of parents that were very conscious about social justice and political affairs, very politically involved in their own youth. Both my parents were very actively politically uh, in Colombia, uh, which, you know, was in, in the 60s and 70s, uh, there was turmoil politically, well, everywhere, but, but, but in Colombia, you saw the uh, emergence of three different guerrillas, not one, but three, you know, one was uh, Chinese inspired, the other one was Soviet inspired, and the third one was Cuban inspired. And, and, and my parents were in circles that were, you know, um, involved in all that, those issues. So I, I, I grew up uh, with that. But, you know, like, like every other teenager, I was, I was preoccupied by, by more ludic affairs like music and other stuff. Um, so it was only until I moved to Israel. I, I, I moved from Colombia to Israel to do my university there. And while I, when I arrived at 18 years old, you know, I was quite naive uh, still. And I, I, I didn't know much about the, the, the political realities in the Middle East. While studying at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, I started understanding much better the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And uh, I had, you know, Palestinian friends, many Israeli friends as well, but uh, also many Palestinian friends. And, um, and I became uh, quite involved and active in student uh, uh, movements and cells and organizations uh, that were activating that were kind of advocating for peace um, and for human rights. Uh, when I arrived in Israel, it was the last year of the Rabin government. And, you know, there was this atmosphere of um, peace is going to come very soon. You know, that's it. The end of uh, 40, 50 years of, of conflict. And, and, and it was euphoric. And then in, in November of the, I arrived in January and in November, Rabin was assassinated by a fanatic uh, Jewish, uh, religious Jewish guy and everything started going downhill. Uh, and, and violence uh, was, was in the streets everywhere. Every week in Jerusalem, we had a new bus exploding and you know, it was very close to, uh, to, to all of us. Um, so, I, so I became active in these uh, pro-peace movements and pro-human rights movements. And uh, by the time I finished university in 99, I decided that I didn't want to serve in the Israeli army. You know, as a, as a Jewish immigrant, 
you had to serve in the in the Israeli army. Um, but I declared myself a conscientious objector and and they sent me to jail oh, uh, <laughs> because there is no conscientious objection in, in Israel for men. Women can be conscientious objectors and they can do social service instead of military service, not men. So I um, luckily I only spent two weeks in a, in a military jail. There were other people, uh, we call them refuseniks, that were also refusing to do the Israeli army that spent three months, six months, even a year in the military jail. Um, uh, I was lucky. And then after, because I think one of the reasons is that I was older than usually Israelis get recruited at 18 years old. By the time I finished university, I was 23, 24. So they, you know, let me go more, more easily. Um, and then after that, I was convinced that I, I wanted to work in human rights for the rest of my life. Uh, so I, I didn't think too much about the, you know, professionalization of, of human rights that, that we now know and, and what that. I just wanted to dedicate my life to, to human rights. So I, I, um, I applied to, for the job at Betselem, the Israel Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories. And I got this job as outreach coordinator. Um, and luckily for me, after like six months or so of being uh, with Betzalem, which is an excellent organization and, and really, you know, really one of the few Israeli organizations that work on human rights in the occupied Palestinian territories, um, the second intifada started. Uh, and uh, when Ariel Sharon decided to, to do a trip to the Temple Mount, which is exactly or, or one of the reasons why we are having the current uh, upheaval again, and um, and then the, the occupied territories were declared closed military zones. Uh, Israelis couldn't enter there anymore. And therefore, my role, which was to organize activities there in the occupied territories, bringing press, bringing uh, celebrities, bringing volunteers uh, from Israel to there to organize events around water rights or land rights or you know these house demolitions, torture. Um, we couldn't do that anymore. So I was reduced to half time. Uh, and after a year like that, um, uh, with the girlfriend I had at the time, we decided to leave Israel until the situation would improve and we could actually conduct our work more properly. And then we moved to, to Mexico. And so to make a long story short, uh, in Mexico, I continue working on human rights issues. Then I decided that I needed a law degree in order to be more uh, effective with my international human rights work. And so I, I got uh, accepted at Cambridge. I did uh, two years uh, a law degree there. And then I, uh, I started looking for jobs in human rights. And I, I always felt that um, I felt more of uh, affinity towards economic, social, and cultural rights, to be honest, than civil and political rights. Civil and political rights are super important, don't get me wrong. But there were so many organizations focusing on civil and political rights. You know, most of what Amnesty used to do was that, Human Rights Watch, everybody, the UN was very much focused on civil and political rights. And I, and I thought, you know, economic, social, and cultural rights needed more, more attention. This was, you know, 20 years ago. So, um, so that's what attracted me to the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, the, the economic, social, and cultural rights focus of the, of the work. I was lucky to, to get the, the job. I was already leaving the, the UK, to be honest, because it was very expensive to stay in the UK without a job. And I had been for a few months looking for a job. Um, and literally the day I had the flight to go back to Israel uh, from Heathrow, I got the interview that day. And I got, I went to the interview, I took the flight. And when I was in Israel, Chris Avery called me to offer me the job. So I moved everything back to, to the UK and, um, and, and, and I've been there ever since. Uh, so I think that the field was less competitive back then. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it, uh, we, we used to joke, uh, sometimes we have 500, 600 applicants for, for one research assistant job uh, or, or even one internship. And sometimes we joke with my colleagues that if we were to apply right now for an internship in the organization, we wouldn't get it. Uh, 
So it, it, it's amazing. And I, I do feel for the young people nowadays and your students, Olga, that it, they are facing more, more competition. It's not impossible. So I, I don't want to discourage people. Yeah, please, please try. Please stay in the field. We know we need as many hands as possible. And, and, and there are more organizations nowadays and, uh, and, and there are more options. But it is a competitive uh, field. And um, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah, but I think it, you're right in this perception that I think we had the when we were starting to work on human rights, you weren't thinking of human rights as a profession. While now students have to kind of be strategic about student graduates have to be even pre, before graduates, they have to be so strategic about any job, including human rights and yeah. including to go to organizations that have internships for free and uh, and um, uh, you know work uh, start a very low pay salary compared imagine the law schools no compared to their colleagues that uh, we're in Greenwich, so we have Canary Wharf right in front. Not that anybody wants to call it Canary Wharf anymore, but <laughs> with the pandemic, that's totally empty. But uh, yeah, Mauricio, that is so interesting. I, I the the experience, uh, I guess, the um, you know being deprived of uh, liberty for your uh, ideas, for your own uh, refusal to uh, do something that goes against your moral code. It's um, I guess uh, you know the with all the difference, of course, of some of the uh, uh, people who are really risking their lives uh, and, and our field that, you know, I always say when Sima says I'm an activist, I always say, well, an activist in my, in my, <laughs> reading my, my journal articles is, <laughs> is very safe, no, but uh, mm. yeah, but at that, at, you feel that that gave, gives you some kind of, uh, you know, different perspective, maybe than the purely, um, white male dominated uh, uh, field that we had uh, when 2006, 2005, when we all were very much um, uh, starting to be uh, elements of the, of the whole movement. Hmm? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I don't want to, to be unfair and, and, and to say that, that I'm not privileged because I, I am also privileged in many respects. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I didn't grow up in a rich family or anything like that, but, you know, middle class, I was never deprived of anything uh, essential and I had the opportunities. Well, I went to Israel, by the way, because I didn't have enough money to go to the US or to Europe to study. I really wanted to go to Europe to study, but it was just too expensive. And, uh, and as, as a Jew, uh, the Israeli government would pay for my air ticket and for the first three years at university. So, you know, that, that was a big factor in the decision to, to go there. Um, but yes, I mean, of, of course, other than that, that experience within the military jail, I, I, I haven't had to uh, risk my life in the conducting the hum, human rights work. Um, but I could be, I, I, I was very close to, to, to people who did. And, and for example, in Mexico, one of the NGOs that I work with was working very closely in, in with the issue of uh, feminicide, of uh, killing of women. Femicide, yeah. Femicide uh, in the north of the country. And, you know, I traveled there and uh, I saw firsthand uh, the, the, the appalling and terrible situation of, uh, of many of the women activists in, in Ciudad Juarez. Um, and, and then, obviously, of course, in Israel also, uh, the, the, some Palestinians risking their life every day when they were going out and documenting abuses by soldiers by settlers uh etc so um so could see that so i i am uh very sensitive to that and i uh all try to support and help them as much as we i can from uh from where i sit uh, and again yeah elevate their voices and and allow them to shape their own uh, uh, their own policies and the and the protection mechanisms also that will will help them uh, rather than imposing that uh, that from from the north. But that tension will always exist there of being kind of a northern organization uh, co collaborating with global south organization. That's one of the reasons we decided two years ago to register ourselves in Colombia, for example. 
so we we are now a local organization in Colombia, and uh, and um, so so it's, it's different. You know, the perception of the people there is different when we come and uh, join uh, join forces for a particular project or or issue. Uh, changes the whole the whole narrative and uh, we have an office there with you know five people there and uh, and it has allowed us to um to capture to to uh gather more uh attention to some of the business and human rights issues get some grants and collaborate more effectively shoulder to shoulder with local colombian ngos and civil society in all the activities that we do there also training capacity building but uh, but join briefing uh, writing um some influencing some advocacy uh etc so yeah great why well, uh, it remains to me to say that we're very grateful that you got that job that last day <laughs> because that i i, I think it, it literally has uh, meant that the the you know the you have been a key element of the growth of the movement. And uh, I think without you, Mauricio, this um, the spectrum will look totally different. So uh, we are so, so pleased. That Thank you. <laughs> that too kind. Too kind. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Great. So Mauricio, I have to say that um, in all the years I've known you, I, I didn't know that, that you had been in jail. <laughs> so, I, so now I now I've got more to uh, to mull over in terms of uh, you know I've 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 often thought that this space is not the business and human rights. I guess how it's become this professionalized space. I've I've started to more recently, probably potentially too critically, but I think it's you know it's not it could be more inclusive. It hasn't been inclusive enough. But actually, you know, um, I think in the last couple of people we've had on actually the rights of others, I now feel a bit um, more assured that actually it is that we do have a lot of people who are really having and making a contribution a meaningful contribution in this space that have come from very different backgrounds. Um, you know, Olga, of course, from Spain, and then yourself, Colombia, you know, and then sort of moving, you know, to Israel and then now Europe. Um, yeah, and then myself, like you know, child of Indian immigrants growing up in Canada. Like, actually, it is it is a pretty pretty big global spread when you when you think about it in in those terms. Of course, we had like Celia last week, you know, India. Yeah, and then we had um, we had Mahmoud, who's from Sierra Leone. One, so it just it makes me think like actually, you know, when you do look at a lot of people who are contributing in this space. Um, it probably is much more inclusive than than perhaps we all give credit to so if we can actually agree on some common aims that's impressive <laughs> um but i do i do think um i mean i did want to ask you this because you said something really interesting and it's building on this registration of the office in colombia um, you know, when I was thinking that actually you're one of the first people we've spoken to, you know, who actually, um, and also part of this, the objective of the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, it's really the importance of like partnerships, coalitions, you know, sort of like bringing together, you know, and, and creating sort of partner, this, I mean, movements, coalitions, um, the in-country presence, you're saying connecting the global north, the global south, you know, and, and, and this type of thing. Um, it's such a main uh, it seems like an objective. It's a huge objective in itself to achieve that, right? And to do that well. And and I know that, um, you know, recently I've been thinking about, you know, as, as we move forward, and, and this is kind of where I wanted to like, my last question to you is that, you know, what is it that we should do better, you know, in this space sort of moving, like, what would you like to see more of like happen in this space, let's say for the next, you know, 10 years, you know, of, of your career? It's a big question. But and then I wondered whether or not as part of that, my my own feeling is that um, it's his partner, it's his movements, partnerships, coalitions, you know, I've always enjoyed working with others. Mm. And, you know, of course, with, and I've had the privilege like you to <laughs> do research or through projects, work with people in country. You know, I feel like I have quite a strong global, I guess, network of people, but I still feel like something, there's been something that's been missed out, right? And like, whether or not it's, it's just the real advancing, you know, collectively in order to really have that impact, you know, the real leverage, the real hitter, it's really demand change. Um, but I'm interested in, in your thoughts. Yeah. on that on, I guess wow. on that coalition part and what 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 you'd want to see differently before well, you retire 
yeah from this work well uh First, on the on the inclusivity issue, I would like to see more inclusiveness in in, in the business and human rights field because even though, as as you say, we, we maybe we are not as white male northern as, as we sometimes think, but but there but I think we can do better. Um, yeah, and in you know in it, we need to think more about how to do better and in in our recruitment practices and in 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 other in other spheres but do, don't you think that's a that's an issue with the human rights field overall not just business and human rights i think it's an issue with this professionalization of human rights right yeah. and and i think you're right like if if you think of when i entered the field like it's even the way you know you we used to recruit people right a master is in this a degree in this and you know like these i think the priority that was given to the the qualification but also the institution like these yeah. i think it's only really recently that we've all started to rethink that, that actually if we're relying on these and the institutions we're actually not being inclusive i mean it's a systemic issue isn't it and yeah. and we've all and i think the human rights field is definitely um like sort of fallen within that trap particularly in the in the northern hemisphere that's for sure i think um yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I think the practitioners are different. Like, you know, yeah. That's true. And when when we were talking about you know students now and their their human rights career, um, if I could give them any advice, yeah, I mean, of course, volunteering on internship is 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 kind of is is nowadays a must. Hopefully, it's a paid internship rather than an unpaid yeah. internship. And we did our own internal process of you know getting to a place where you know nowadays luckily we can say we 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 don't accept unpaid internships uh only if they are sponsored by the university or or we pay them mm. um but experiencing the global in the global south or in the in the on the ground is crucial and you know i hope olga won't be mad at me saying that but if if i have two people that on paper are, are equal um in terms of their you know experience and trajectory we at the restaurant center would always give a little bit more points to someone that has had experience on the ground than someone that has another academic degree uh, and i think that helps you know towards that uh, that issue because yeah i mean absolutely academic degrees are shouldn't be the, the determining uh, factor um but back to the to, to your question on what would i like to see in the future i yes i i do think that this um so in the i know for example the uh, the field of human rights defenders which i have been leading also for the last five years is a field that operates a lot through coalitions mm -hmm. and networks so we have joined all sorts of coalitions that 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 five years ago I didn't even know that existed, but that are wonderful uh, places to exchange uh, lessons, to um, uh, strategize together, and to to act together uh, in a much more effective and coordinated way. So I think that is one one uh, aspect to the answer is that you know in the future uh, i would love to see more coalitions and more more networking more work as a group to to achieve change um because not one single organization is gonna achieve much on yeah. on its own um and and so definitely all this work with coalitions it has its its uh, disadvantages as well and uh, you know you need to coordinate with a lot of people you need to do compromises you need to uh some things are more take longer and are delayed but uh overall i think the advantages outweigh the disadvantages um and and social movements well that's a more that's a more difficult question uh Mm -hmm. I think there are there are theorists out there, and, and in practice, we could also say that no significant ch change in our political, economic, social system has ever happened without people agitating out there for for the change. Um, and I think there is some truth in that. So, without a, a real social movement, maybe it's limited what we will ever ever achieve. And yet we are not very good as human rights organizations in doing things together with social movements, uh, I feel, uh, or at least 
not all of us. Um, so, you know, we have tried uh, in some instances, and I think there is a bit of mistrust from both sides, partly that professionalization. So some social movements, let's take, for example, the landless movement in Brazil. Um, they are very powerful. They are, they are excellent in, in demanding their, uh, uh, their, their agenda, and they have achieved impressive results. Um, and I don't think that um, the, the, a lot of the human rights organizations, classically speaking in Brazil, have known very well how to interact smoothly with them or, or how to join forces well. I, I may be mistaken, I'm not an expert in, in Brazil, of course, but um, uh, my impression is that it could be a better, we could do a better job in, in, in integrating, in pushing for the same goals even in our different areas of specialization. So while the social movement can be out there asking for that systemic change that we mentioned before, we could be doing the, um, the legislative advocacy and lobbying that is needed to, to, to change the laws that will allow those changes demanded by the social movement to have more echo and more impact, mm -hmm. for example, or, um, or, or, you know, working in partnership with some progressive businesses to create the political space where those changes could happen, as we have seen with mandatory human rights diligence, um, that gives the space to those politicians to say to the more regressive business lobby, which will always exist and will always be there unless capitalism dies, um, to say to them, well, look, are, there are all, all these other companies and all these other business associations that are for mandatory human rights religious, even for the binding treaty. There are a few companies that support that or for uh, other things. So, you know, why are you saying that this is antagonistic to the concept of businesses? It, it is not. Uh, so creating those political spaces and those um, mm. uh, movements, you know, working with, the, with allies, in all aspects, in all spheres, uh, in business, in government, in civil society, is, is the way of the change in, in the future, um, short of full-blown revolution. <laughs> short of being a conscientious objector. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it is that level of, of civil disobedience needs to be a, a, a last resort measure, right? And then for me, it was when I was there, you know, when I was going to be recruited and, and even and I, and I was going to be part of this army that I saw as an army of occupation, as an army that its mere existence was oppressing an entire ethnic population. Um, because some people will say, oh, but what if you had gone to do your military service in an office doing kind of administrative work? Because, you know, in, in the Israeli army, you have two types of soldiers, mm -hmm. the combat forces and the office people, like people that are not in, in combat in field. So yeah, I could have been that, but I felt I would have been still part of the same apparatus of the same machine of occupation and i didn't want to and i uh, and i first declared myself pacifist but they don't recognize pacifism either so uh i had to do the the conscious objective but that needs to be a, a last resort uh, thing and i was listening to a philosophy podcast the other day and and i i, I remember that the um uh i think it was john rawls who said uh defended uh, civil disobedience and defended uh, conscientious objection actually as a way to as an escape valve for basically as a way to preserve the legal architecture of the system because it acts as a as a valve to you know let all these tension and anxiety escape but it also reaffirmation that in principle i am for the law i am for justice systems in society is just that this specific thing is unjust to me so i am willing to pay the personal price uh, according to the way that the laws uh, as a communication tool to to send a message to the rest of the people 
this is what you sh everybody should be doing because this is fundamentally unjust and unfair and it's true when i when i did that i wanted as many people to know that i that i did it there, there weren't social media back then and there wasn't anything like that but i i, I was sending letters to the newspapers and stuff because yes. i wanted people to know that that i had done that and, and some of my friends were, were doing the same i didn't want that to pass that, that there was just an individual act of selfishness um, that, I, that I, you know, I wanted to escape or avoid the, the military service. I was more than willing to do social service for the same length of time instead of the military service, but they didn't allow me. So um, I wanted people to know. And that is, that is when civil disobedience actually contributes to, to, uh, to the justice system rather than being, you know, fully against it. It's incredibly, it's incredibly interesting, Mauricio, and actually, it's very courageous, and um, and it and it's such an important issue, right, that you stood up for. So yeah, so thank you, thank you, Mauricio, um, for that story and for and for really being so honest as to your roots and also very true to your vision. And uh, I know that um, thank you so much for joining Olga and I on this discussion today with the rights of others. And uh, I can't believe it's your first podcast because you're such a natural. We'll have to we'll have to have you back and do it again. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for thinking of me and for, for inviting me. And uh, yes, uh, I'm back whenever you want me to be. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Hold you to it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you, Sima. And Olga and everybody else in this podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you.